Only thing unplugged is Forgotten Seasons. What is up, everybody? Welcome to Forgotten Seasons. This is your host, Dylan Dreyfus. We got a great one today, 2009 Magic with J.J. Redick. Definitely a fan favorite squad, and for good reason, I think. We got a peak Dwight Howard, Rashard Lewis, Hidu Turkoglu, Stan Van Gundy. Got tight playoff battles against Philly, Boston, LeBron's Cavs, and then a finals in which they fell to a determined Kobe Bryant and the Los Angeles Lakers. This Magic squad took a big leap from the year before. They won 59 games, had the number one defense in the league, and finished as the three seed in the East. They were ahead of their time, shot a ton of threes, and ran a pretty modern offense. You'll hear JJ talk about how Stan Van Gundy, their coach, came in and implemented a ton of analytics into the team at a time where analytics were not at all very prevalent in the league. Before we get into it, a quick reminder to rate and review the pod if you are liking it. You can also go check out the rest of the Showtime Basketball catalog. KG certified, all the smoke, what's burning. You will not be disappointed. Let's get into it now. Forgotten Seasons with JJ Redick on the 2009 Magic begins right now. Welcome everybody to Forgotten Seasons. Welcome to JJ Redick. JJ, how's it how's it going today, man? It's great, man. Life is good. No complaints. No Life complaints. is great. You're smiling. We're going back to 2008, 2009 Orlando Magic, the year that changed your career. You have said, I want to start sort of the beginning of your career. Obviously, one of the most decorated players in college basketball history. You get drafted to the Magic in 2006. And you've said that those first two years was sort of like a punch in the mouth. Uh, A lot of DNP coaches decision. You're fighting for minutes, not knowing when they're coming. And then 2008-9 comes. You said after you lose in the 2008 playoffs that that summer you sort of reinvented yourself. You reinvented your your training, your conditioning. I want to go back to then. You guys lose to Detroit in the 2008 playoffs. You've joked that you were asking your agent about overseas options what exactly goes down in that summer? Take us through your just training regimen and how you work to reinvent yourself in the NBA. Yeah. I mean, starting with my, the summer after my sophomore year at Duke, like I always worked, you know, I worked in high school, my first two years at Duke, it's well-documented. I've talked about it a bunch, but I, I really struggled, um, you know, I, finding my own sense of identity. And, and that summer after my sophomore year, I, I got on a, a structured workout program. I got more diligent about my diet, about my sleep, and it was life-changing. And so when I got to the pros, you know, I still had that work ethic and I was still in the gym working on my game. Um, what I realized about halfway through that 2008 season um, was that I, I needed to change my body. And I went to Joe Rogowski uh, probably in February and I was like, man, like I want to get in the weight room. I got to get stronger. I got to get quicker. I got to get, I got to get faster. And so, you know, we worked the rest of that season. Obviously the playing time didn't come and, and truthfully, I didn't expect it to come. I, I didn't think it was going to be an immediate result um, or, you know, immediate, immediate positive outcome. But that summer I actually went back to Duke. And I felt like I needed to get out of Orlando um, because I just needed to clear my mind. So I went back to Duke. I rented like a corporate uh, apartment, fully furnished, about 20 minutes from campus, uh, lived alone. And I worked out every day with Chris Carwell uh, on on the court. Will Stevens, who is still the strength coach at at Duke, uh, had me in the weight room four days a week. 
and this guy Jeff Hauser, uh, who I worked out with at Duke, he was on the he was an alternate on the 1968 U.S. Olympic track team. Uh, he actually roomed with John Carlos in Mexico City, and uh, Jeff uh, had me on the track twice a week. Uh, he had me on the <laughs> his drills were hilarious, but you know we would we would do all these different agility drills and conditioning drills, and um, probably late July I went back to Orlando. I was in fantastic shape. Uh, and I kept up the same training regimen, li lifting regimen going to that season. Um, but I knew nothing was going to be guaranteed. Like it was just, at that point, it was just a matter of survival for me. And literally, I mean, I, you know, to go from 41 games, 42 games played in my rookie year, 14 minutes a game to 34 games played my second year, eight minutes a game, which basically means I was playing in blowout time mm -hmm. uh, in the fourth quarter. Um, it was really discouraging. And so for me, it was just like, I had to go full tilt. Now I didn't know at the time <laughs> that for the rest of my career, I would also go full tilt, but that summer really established my routine. And so for the next 13 years, that was my routine in the summer. I would take Saturdays off, but other than that, it was six days a week in the gym, a few hours a day, um, just really focusing on my body and my skills and, uh, sleep and diet. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I imagine like the whole mental aspect of it too, like you're a shooter, your whole game is sort of set on the fact that um, you can't overthink things when you get it, you gotta let it fly. Uh, is there is there also a mental aspect of it? Like when you're back uh, with the magic going into the 2008-9 season, like what is the, the mental side of that? Yeah, the mental side of it for me was, I, I, I felt like I had to compete on the defensive end more because, you know, with, with Stan, I wasn't getting plays called for me. No, I, I was, I was very much just spotting up. You know, we ran, uh, especially that, that third season of mine, that 2008, 2009 season. Uh, and we can get into sort of mm -hmm. how this happened organically, but we, we played four out one in, we ran spread pick and rolls, but four shooters around Dwight as the role man. And, and obviously we would post him sometimes too, but I, I was really offensively. It was like, I, I'm going to spot up. So for me to make an impact, like I have to be a hard-nosed defensive player, I have to compete, I have to dive on the floor, I have to take charges. Um, and so that, for mentally for me, that was the switch. Like, I've got to compete on that end if I want to earn any minutes. Mm. Well, they also draft Courtney Lee at your position, uh, who ends up starting for most of the year. So you mentioned your, your whole transformation. The team also takes a big leap going into this season. You were a good team the season before, 52 wins, you know, good playoff team. I don't think by any means a contender, but then something kind of flips. You make a leap, seven more wins, 59 wins, number one defense in the league. Can you notice anything different in the team with the team going into that season where you're saying to yourself, okay, like, you know, something's different. Like we're actually really, really good. Richard Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Richard Lewis, man. No, I'm being serious. Uh, we, we signed Richard that summer and he obviously brought a lot on the court as a player. And the initial plan was for Rashard to start at the three and Tony Batti was going to start at the four and Dwight was going to start at the five. And I think Turk, you know, was going to come off the bench. And Tony Batti tore his shoulder uh, battling Dwight in the post in a, in a preseason workout. So he was out. And we tried to play Turk at four during preseason games, but he was so lazy and didn't want any physical contact. <laughs> so 
Richard. Turk was Turk was. A, I want to get into this oh, later, but I, he was okay. Yeah, we'll get. I have so yeah, much. Yeah. I I have notes. I have notes for every. I always prep for pods. So I have notes for everything. Turk was a monster. That was his best season. Actually, the year before was probably his, his best season. The first year was Stan, but so, uh, so so Turk is like, eh, you know, whatever. Like, it became abundantly clear that Turk wasn't going to be able to do that position. So Richard, this is a great example of Richard just being a team guy. He's the ultimate professional, incredible leader. He's like, I'll I'll play the four. I'll, I'll battle guys in the post because this is before everybody was playing four out one in. Yep. Um, so Richard moves to the four. And we actually lost our first two games that year. Yep. But we get off to this incredible start. We're 33 and eight. Um, we were rolling. And when you're rolling, like you kind of don't, you're so caught up in the moment. You don't really appreciate like how good you are. Mm-hmm. But I remember our 33, 33rd win, which was the end of a West Coast trip. And we beat Denver. Which they were a great team. Carmelo Anthony, yep, Nene, yep. Kenyon Martin. They had a bunch Chauncey. Of, yeah, Chauncey, great players. And uh Jameer had a big game we, we beat them going away to end that trip with 33 and 8 and it's the halfway point of the season and I remember coming back from that trip after that win being like holy shit like we have a chance to maybe win this year and and obviously there was Boston lurking KG wasn't hurt yet either mm-hmm. um I think he yeah. got hurt later in the year in February he comes he, he comes he comes back but then they shut him down yeah, again yeah. yeah and and then of course you've got LeBron and the Cavs who end up with the number one seed, their role in the whole season. But I knew that we were a contender and, 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 and the difference to me was Richard. So he was everything he brought on the court, but it was also the leadership, which keep in mind at this time, like Dwight's in his fifth year, Jameer's in his fifth year, Richard provided that leadership that we needed on that team. Mm-hmm. Stan's also in his second year. So you have sort of the familiarity with the coach, I want to sort of go deeper into the team breakdown now. Uh, you guys as a, as a team were, were ahead of your time. You mentioned the, the four out, one in. You guys were the third team ever to hit 10 threes in a game or, or per game in a season, which is crazy to say now because that's like a day at the office for, for Steph or somebody like that. Was that something that Stan preached? Because I saw your rookie year, you guys barely shot any threes, and then Stan comes in the next year, and you guys go to, like, number two in the league and threes attempted. Is that something that he's preaching, or is it just, like, the personnel of the team? Oh, he's preaching that. Um, Oddly enough, my rookie year, we ran Princeton's offense, which was crazy to me because in an ideal Princeton offense, you have a highly skilled big man right. that can play out on the floor that can make passes. And our big man was Dwight Howard. And that's not a knock on Dwight, who is one of the most dominant players in his era. I'll take Dwight Howard's prime over nearly every center of my era. Mm-hmm. Um, he should have been on the top 75 list. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. But it was like our offense didn't suit our personnel. Mm-hmm. And then our first meeting the day before training camp, uh, my my second year, so Stan's first year, is the first time I'd ever really heard analytics. And Stan came in and he broke down what a three is worth, what a corner three is worth, what a free throw is worth, what a layup is worth, what a mid-range shot is worth. And he was like, here's our ideal shot profile. And obviously, you know, it wasn't extreme back then, so we still took a lot of mid-range jumpers. But there was absolutely an emphasis, even in that first year, before we went to the spread pick and roll, 
before we had Richard and before we put Richard at the four, there was an emphasis on shooting threes. We got to remake Moneyball with uh, Jonah Hill as, <laughs> as Stan Van Gundy. I mean, that's 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 incredible. What an incredible casting! I would love, dude, Jonah Hill with dyed hair and a and a black mustache. Oh man, we got to talk after. We we, we got to talk. We got to talk after. I think it's got to happen. <laughs> that's incredible. I mean, so it translates to wins, and then I want to get into just the 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 team, the player by player breakdown. Let's start with Hito. I mean, not not the lockdown defensive player of the year candidate, but when watching your guys' game, the offense really flows through him. Him, Obviously, we get the paint touches with Dwight, but there's a ton of two-man game between Hito and Dwight. Um, a lot of pick and rolls. Talk about playing with Hito on the offensive side of the of the ball. Uh, to me, that's really like the, the engine of your offense on the perimeter. Yeah, e even in the year prior, in 2008, that first year with Stan, he unlocked the best version of Hito, which was as a point forward and as a ball handler. And Hito had never really played that position before, played that role before. But, you know, when, when those two years with Hito and Dwight and Stan, Hito was our closer. Yeah. Like all our fourth quarter plays was a three, five pick and roll on the left side. And Hito could obviously shoot. He had, a, he had a great two-man action, pocket passes and lobs with Dwight. But because he was so big, a la, you know, Luca. Uh, LeBron, Luca, right, yeah. yeah. He he could make every pass. So we're spread. You've got to pay attention to the two-man game. This is still at a time where people were not really playing a ton of drop coverage. That wasn't mm -hmm. really a thing. Hedges. So you, you've got, yeah, you've got hedges and you've got that, sh that weak side pulling over the strong side low man. So we were able to just pick apart defenses because mm -hmm. of Hito's size and passing ability where he's swinging to the corner or swinging to the wing, you know, touch pass to the corner for a three. Um, we had people running all over the court. And, you know, the next year, <laughs> even even in 2010 and 2011, when we had Ryan Anderson uh, in that in that um, in that Richard role, uh, teams were still tagging Dwight with the four man. So we would have Richard or Ryan in the upper quadrant on, on one of the wings at that mm -hmm. 45 degree angle in the spread pick and roll. And teams would take the four man from the nail and drop them all the way to tag Dwight in the paint. So the near side wing is just wide open. He's wide open. And so you're either leaving Richard or Ryan for an open three. And if you rotate out of the corner, we're getting a corner. three. It was just bad defense. I don't team to do this and i'm like what is going on have you have you watched this play um but Hito Hito really unlocked that offense and and the other thing i would say is like jameer mm -hmm. and i said this to jameer even after is like jameer to me could have been an all-star four or five times like he he was so good he, he was such an underappreciated player in that era and for that team but he had to sacrifice a lot as the point guard in allowing Hito to sort of be the closer and be the primary playmaker in the fourth quarter. Like Jameer had to sacrifice a lot in terms of playing off the ball. Um, and obviously Jameer would close games for us and made some huge shots for us. Um, but those two guys playing in that pick and roll um, were just deadly. Yeah. You mentioned Jameer. And of course this year he's hurt for pretty much the whole playoffs. And obviously everybody talks about Garnett being out for the Celtics and I'm not comparing Garnett to Jameer Nelson, but that was a big aspect of your team that's gone. Rafer Alston fills his place, who's also a great, you know, skip to my Lou is a legend in his own right. Um, 
So then Stan, I just want to like, you've talked a lot and Matt's talked a lot about like his practices. You know, this is not like a shoot around practice. You guys are knee pads, all that. You've played for coaches like him. And then you've played for, you know, other coaches. We always hear Doc Rivers as like a, a player's coach. What do you prefer? You know, would you rather have that coach be demanding and have those long practices in, in preparation? Or would you rather play for a coach that sort of just lets the players be who they are um, and isn't as demanding? Well, no, I, I prefer demanding and I, I, I would take accountability. You, you can be demanding and you can be accountable and not beat people up. Um, mm-hmm. So I would, I would probably take some, some version of a yeah. hybrid. Uh, we, I mean, our shoot arounds on game day, we would go live like in knee pads with Stan mm-hmm. for an hour. And then we'd walk through literally every fucking play for another <laughs> half an hour. And then we would go watch film for a good half an hour. Like our shoot arounds, like you go to, you go to Chicago on the road and, and you, you know, the bus leaves at nine 15, you're on the bus for 30 minutes. You get to sh- get to shoot around at nine 45. You change in the locker room. You're on the court at 10, uh, you get through film at 12, then guys get shots up for 15, 20 minutes, and then you're back in the bus. You're like back in your, at your hotel at one o'clock on a game day. Like that's a, that's a three, and a three and a half hour plus excursion on a game day. I hated that. Everybody hated that. We all hated it. Um, but it was good for us. I mean, in some ways it was good for us, but, um, you know, Doc, Doc, did a great job. You know, he, he also had, you know, great assistants like Ty Lu mm-hmm. one year and, and L Frank, um, Brendan O'Connor. Like these guys were great in shoot arounds with defensive game plans and stuff. And like we, our team had incredible, our Clippers teams had incredible attention to detail. Um, but we didn't have like the wear and tear right. that we had with Stan. Um, and, and keep in mind too, like there's been this weird, there's been this weird shift with practices. Um, because when we used to play a lot of back-to-backs, you would have breaks during Mm -hmm. the season. You would have three, four-day breaks between games where you could get multiple days of practice. Well, they took away all of the back-to-backs, or a lot of the back-to-backs, I should say. So now it just feels like there's rarely a two-day break between games. It's a lot of game, non-game day, game, non-day, game. and so. It's really hard, especially, you know, with the way the game is played now to play 30 to 35 minutes in an NBA game, come in the next day, go live, play the next day, go like, it's almost impossible. So it's really hard now in today's NBA to actually find time to play five on five live practice. Is that like the last few years or did that happen before? Because I know that COVID also threw like a lot of the practice schedule in a ruck or was is that happening yeah. pre-COVID? It was happening pre-COVID. It, there was a shift, and I can't remember what year it was, um, where they they really made an emphasis on getting rid of back to back to backs, and mm-hmm. and the byproduct of that was there there inherently just became less multiple days between games, so there became less practice time, mm-hmm. and also our our union mandated a certain amount of off days. So right. my rookie year, my rookie year with Brian Hill, we probably had two or three days off the whole wow. season. You know, um, Monty Williams, I, we were, I was with him, uh, last week, um, pregame before the, the Phoenix Miami game that I did for ESPN. And he was talking about, uh, playing for Riley, his rookie year. And he said they had one off day the entire season and, and stands a Riley guy. 
Stan was great. He, he gave us off days. Like we always do. There was a, we would go in four or five day segments and on the fifth or sixth day would be an off day. And he would mm -hmm. give us this, the schedule before the season. We knew when our off days would be. So he was great about giving us off days, but those days we worked, we really fucking worked. We mm -hmm. really worked. So I'm a Knicks fan and I talk about this with my friends with Tibbs and obviously last year, like the Knicks had this complete transformation. They're playing inspired and they, they, it results in wins. And then this year, the energy is just gone. Um, does the fact that a coach is so demanding then coming back for those next seasons where it's like, okay, here we go again. Like, is it hard to keep that like grip and like, is it hard for a coach to keep that with its players over multiple years? Cause that's what it seems like is happening to the Knicks is that they came yeah. in last year. They, they players transformed their careers. They got paid. And I'm not saying it's about the money, but like then coming in the next year and it's like, fuck, like, you know, here we go again. Is, is, <laughs> is there, is there any truth to that? Uh, there's, there's probably some truth to it. The NBA season, no matter what, I don't care what coach you play for. It is a grind mm -hmm. and there's a constant um, performance anxiety that exists throughout a season. It never goes away. Um, you add in the travel, you add in games, you add in guys are great now, you know, about getting extra work in. Um, and then you add in like the voice and, you know, as much as it is the work, the voice can sometimes become a bear. The, mm -hmm. the voice can sometimes become a burden. So I think that that happened, and I'm not saying that's happened in Tibbs. I'm just saying that that has happened in my career, where it's just like, man, like it's not that you don't want to go into work, but you're like, man, I'm I'm exhausted mm -hmm. physically, mentally, emotionally. That's that's pretty much inherent to any NBA season, regardless of who the coach is. Makes sense. I mean, there's there's certainly a lot that us as the fans don't see. Um, <laughs> Okay, so going back into the season, you mentioned the regular season, you you lose the first two games for the whole year, you only lose consecutive games three times. So you mentioned that that first two game losing streak, you have another two game losing streak, and then one three game losing streak. But other than that, it's, you know, lose right back into the win column, 59 wins, you guys are the three seed in the East. Round one, you have Philly, which is a bit of a scare. Um, this is when Courtney Lee goes out, breaks his face. You're thrust into the starting lineup. I was looking back at that Philly team. Like they were really good. I mean, uh, Andre Iguodala, Andre Miller, Thaddeus Young, Lou Williams. They go up 2-1 against you guys. He do hits that big shot in game four uh, to win it. But what do you remember from that series and that Philly team? I, I want to go back real quick. And yeah, I, yeah, sure, I'll, sure. I'll answer your, I'll answer your question. I, you mentioned Rafer, and I, I, I want this to be very clear. Rafer saved our season. Like we, we lose Jameer in early February. We have a 16 day stretch between his injury and February 19th, the trade deadline when we trade for Rafer and we really struggled. Uh, we traded for Ty Lue, but as a, as a, as a, at that point he was late in his career. He's and a coach already. Yeah, he was, yeah, <laughs> Ty Lue is, is the man. He was one of my yeah. favorite teammates I've ever had. And obviously got the chance to play for him when I was in LA, but you know, he, he wasn't going to give us at that point in his career, the, the, the pick and roll operation and, and the setup that we needed with that team and Rafer trading for Rafer really saved our season because he was able to operate as a pick and roll. He shot enough threes and could make enough threes. They kept defenses on us. He was scrappy. 
He was hard nosed. He had swag he sh- too. He, had, yeah. he was a shit talker. Yeah. Um, so like he saved our season. Um, the, the, I, I always talk about this, especially later in my career when I would be in locker rooms, this is in Philly, uh, especially, um, I, I know I anecdotally said this a bunch in, in, uh, in LA with the Clippers when we would get to the playoffs, but like so much can happen during a playoff series. You cannot, you cannot get too low or too high. And the Philly series, that round one against, uh, or in, in 2009 is a great example of that. We lose game one at the buzzer. We lose game three at the buzzer. We're down 2-1 on the road in Philly. And Turk, I think he banked in a three, if I'm not mistaken, from the right wing. I don't think it was, I'll look, I don't think it was a bank, but he, he, so he had banked in a three. He, he had made a, a buzzer beater in one of those two years against Portland. Yeah. One of them was a bank. Mm-hmm. One of them was a bank. One of them hit the back of the rim and went in. But it, like we were, we, to get to two, two, we had to withstand mm-hmm. two buzzer beaters from them. We had to rely on Turk making a, a heroic shot to get us tied. And then in game five, Dwight, not only injures our starting shooting guard, but he he elbows down there and gets suspended for game six. So we're now going on the road in a closeout game, starting me at the two um, and, and Martian Gortat at five. And of course, you know, I hit five threes that game. Mm-hmm. Gortat um, uh, has a double-double. I think he had like 11 and 15. The Polish hammer. Yeah, the Polish hammer. <laughs> Richard goes for 29. He has a huge game, and and we win that series. But, again, we were the three seed with 59 wins. That Philly team had a ton of talent, and, and we were lucky in some ways to even get out of that first round. And, and then you look back, like, we, we make the finals, and, and you go series by series. Um, like, and we can talk about every series, but, like, you know, the Boston series, we lose game four at the buzzer. Big baby hits a 17 footer. Um, game two, LeBron hits a buzzer beater yep. to beat us in the conference finals. Game two in the finals, Courtney Lee misses a layup yep. buzzer. Game four of the finals, we're up with a chance to tie the series. We're up 87 82 with under a minute to go. And Derek, you know, Kobe comes down in three seconds after a missed free throw and throws a behind the head pass to Gasol for a dunk to cut it three. We missed the free throws. Derek Fisher hits a three with four seconds or three seconds, whatever it was like, there's so much that can happen. And, and a, a, a series, uh, a title chance can swing on one or two plays. He, last year's a great example of this. Think about the finals last year. It came down to two plays. Yep. Giannis is blocked mm-hmm. on that alley-oop. And the Drew and then this, and then, and then Drew Steele and the alley-oop. Like it came down to two plays that could have easily gone the other way in Phoenix's favor. It's crazy. I mean, we always hear luck is such a, a big factor of it, but I, I was going to ask you this later, but I mean, just the, the idea of these windows, right. And that you have a chance to win a title. I think there's something to be said about going all in. I mean, obviously it puts you at risk, but it's really hard to win one playoff series than to win two, three, and four. And I think this is a perfect example. Like the window closes really, really soon after that but um yeah i mean when you think about all the little things that have to go your way to even be in the position to win 
Uh, people just don't realize that. And they're focused on the, the box score and the final score. Um, yeah. I want to rewind a little bit. You win the Philly series in six. We didn't talk about Dwight. I think we, I, I, my fault, we glossed over that. We don't have to talk about the fact that he should be on the NBA 75 list because I think everybody who's, who watched him at that time and knows basketball knows that. I, I talked to Matt about the 2010 season and he's obviously a defensive guy. He said the biggest thing about Dwight is that it doesn't matter what you guys do on the perimeter. Like you can overplay. If somebody's driving, like there's nothing there. Um, Three-time defensive player of the year. Can you just like remember a story or, or, or anything about Dwight playing with him at this time? What, what, what personifies him as a player? I mean, he was, he was a security blanket, you know, as, especially for, for a guy like me um, who at the time, like, you know, you're, I'm guarding Tracy McGrady. I'm guarding Kobe Bryant. Like I'm Joe Johnson. Like I'm guarding Roy big twos, big Mm -hmm. twos. And I, I knew I could pressure the ball. I knew I could be physical. Um, I knew I could get up into guys um, because if, if, if they could get past me and I, I had my stance the right way and I sort of funneled them game plan wise, which I was great at, if I funneled them to their weak hand, then Dwight was there. And our defense had incredible attention to detail because again, we, we drilled the shit out of everything. Number one in the league. And so we were, yeah, we, we were so good about pulling over to the strong side we were so good with our rotations and our X's and it was really hard to score against us, but we couldn't have done it to that level without Dwight. Like he was a monster defensively. And it's not like, I don't want to talk shit about Rudy Gobert, but like, you're not just like getting defended in the paint. Like he is swallowing you like the, you can hear the, the, the mic on the basket just like explode when he blocks a shot. Yeah, no, he, he, he obviously had size and length and, and athleticism. Um, I remember my rookie year, uh, B.J. Armstrong, who I was with Wasserman, with Arn Tellum and Greg Lawrence and Bob Myers and B.J., um, who's now you know a prominent agent, mm-hmm. was, was doing some stuff with Wasserman. He came to visit me, and we were talking about Dwight. And he said, you know what Dwight's greatest strength is? And I was like, no. And he said, he can rebound outside of the space. And you think about like a lot of great rebounders, you know, like Kevin Love's a great example. Kevin Love is like tech technically mm-hmm. one of the best rebounders there is. He boxes out, he knows angles, he's so good about reading where the ball is going to come off the rim. Uh, you know, offensively, especially in his prime, he was so good at wedging you under the basket, creating an angle for him to get the ball and lay it back in. Dwight didn't need to do any of those things. Like as soon as the ball hit the rim, it didn't matter where it went. He could rebound outside of space. So we, when we were at those Orlando teams with him, like our defensive rebounding percentage was always top two or three in the league. You know, Stan, Stan used to always want us to be 75% or higher defensive rebounding. And, you know, we'd be high seventies, eighties. Like it was because of Dwight, um, you know, that, that whole run that we had in Orlando, um, it was all predicated on him being so good defensively. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know why he didn't make the list. We, uh, that's a whole other conversation, but if anybody watches that, like he's the best player on a team that, you know, wins 59 games, two years in a row, makes the finals um, crazy. So 
going back Boston series, you mentioned big baby hits that buzzer beater KG's out seven game series. I, I do want to ask KG isn't playing, but he's very much still in the game. I think you couldn't tell him that he wasn't in the game and affecting the game. What was KG saying to you, the young, the young Dookie, maybe he thinks you're a little bit vulnerable. Um, what's, what's KG saying to you? Yeah. I mean, he, he was intense. Like he always is. He was intense on the sidelines, despite the fact that he was in a suit. Um, but yeah, every time, every time I would, I would walk, um, I would walk by the bench. He would say that I sucked white boy. You suck white boy. Uh, you suck motherfucker. Um, you ain't going to do shit tonight. Like it was just constant with him. And like, he, he, you know, he was probably talking shit to Dwight too. Um, but like, you know, I, that's just KG. And, and, you know, again, at this point in time in my life, like I've already heard everything you could say to me on a basketball court. I, I lived out a very, very brutal experience at Duke. And <laughs> like, that, that, I was unfazed by that. Like, That's what my, you want. Is that, is that what you I, want? Yeah, no, I, I like, I love competition. I like my, my thing was like, and I was like this throughout my career, you know, post Duke because of what I went through. Like I was never, ever concerned with something happening in the stands, somebody talking shit to me. Like my concern in the, in the, in the Boston series was like, I got to chase Ray fucking Allen around mm-hmm. 17 illegal picks, every single possession. Like I was only concerned with our game plan on Ray out. And, you know, that was a, that was a huge moment. Like that series for me, you know, game six of the Philly series, being able to play in that closeout game on the road and then start against the defending champs guarding, um, the person that I tried to model my game after, like literally my, my idol, uh, you know, I, I, of course, like any person that grew up in the nineties, Michael Jordan was my favorite player, but I wasn't going to be Michael Jordan. Like, I wanted to be Ray Allen and I never, never got quite as good as him, but I, I wanted to be Ray. And so guarding him for seven games, I think Stan texted me after the series. He's like, that was Ray's lowest shooting percentage mm-hmm. that he's had in his career. You did an incredible job. Thank you. You know, true pro. Thank you for being ready. Cause you know, I think, I think I had gotten a DNP in the Philly series and I got some DNPs in the, I got one DNP in the finals and I got a bunch of DNPs in the Cleveland series. So like, just for me to just be ready and just be able to play at that level in such an intense series was, it was a huge, huge moment for me. But yeah, you know, was- going back to my point earlier, I was thinking about this, uh, you know, we talked about the, the baby buzzer being game four. So we win game one on the road, game two, we get blown out. Ray goes nuts. Eddie House went nuts. I think he had 31 or something like that. I love Eddie House. And, and Rafer slapped him upside the head. Yep. So Rafer gets suspended, <laughs> suspended for game three. And we, you know, Anthony Johnson, who's who's at this point is like 35 years old, is is starting uh, in a crucial game for us. He plays well. We blow them out in game three. Uh, we have a chance to win game four. Like we lose game five. We're down three two now. Celtics have never lost a series in their franchise's history up three, two. They're also coming home court yeah. advantage. You they're know, coming off the championship. Yeah. They're coming off the championship. Um, so for us to get game six on, at, you know, at home and then, and then we just, we, we beat the shit out of the game seven. Like we, we ran away and, and this was to me, that was Turk's masterpiece, or, yep. you know, her, uh, you know, Hito's masterpiece. Like he had um, 27 and 12, I think mm-hmm. it was 25 and 12 assists, 25 and 12, okay. 20, 25 and 12. Yeah. 12 assists. Like it was just, he just picked that defense apart. 
Yeah. The Rondo emerges that series too. Like KG's out, but I, I saw your defensive attention was definitely on Pierce, probably letting big baby and Perkins beat you. Um, yeah. But then going into Cleveland, like you mentioned, the Cavs, 66 wins, the one seed, we can go into all the LeBron stuff, but I, I love just looking at little pockets of LeBron's career. Like everything is so different, but at this time I think it was like his supreme athleticism and he was shooting the ball. Well, the average is like 35, nine and seven, um, his supporting cast, he has Mo Williams, but not exactly what he had in, uh, in Miami, yeah. not, not exactly. And it, it just like looking at those Cleveland rosters, like how didn't that GM surround him with, with, with anything really, but he almost wills it. What do you remember just like from LeBron? I, I imagine all you can do is like pray, but is there any moment, obviously he hits that big buzzer beater in game two, but is there any yeah. moment or memory in your mind when you think of, of Braun at that time? Unstoppable. He was unstoppable. Um, you mentioned the numbers. Game five was an elimination game for them at home. Um, he had 37, 14, and 12. There was nothing we could fucking do. And I, I, I think it was that game. Anthony Johnson took a charge and, like, got in front of him. And I remember thinking, like, that's the ballsiest thing. Um, and, I, you know, next you know, not the next year, but his first year with the Heat, I, I – time to charge right he did a spin move I timed it right he caught me with an elbow I had like nine stitches under my eye um like standing in front of him and it still is but like at that time to take a charge on LeBron that was ballsy and and that was but that was our team like Anthony Johnson was uh you know a huge part of that run as the backup point guard and we just had a bunch of guys that really really bought into winning really bought into our team culture really bought into the things Stan was preaching. Um, I don't think we would have been able to, to make that run without Anthony Johnson, without Rafer, without Richard. Like we just, we had great, great leadership on that team with our older players. Yeah, that's awesome. I think uh, I love just looking at it, all, all the little role players because you mentioned so many things go wrong, go haywire, people get out. And it's those guys like Anthony Johnson, Rafer Olsen that step in, that is what swings a championship. Um, so Braun's unstoppable, but you guys beat him. He doesn't have much help going into the finals against Kobe and the Lakers. Um, you mentioned that Courtney Lee missed buzzer beater. I, I, I'm sure you've watched that over. Like that should have been a goaltend. Because I think Gasol <laughs> reaches up and hits the rim from behind, from under it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I've watched it. Um, in Courtney's defense, first of all, it was incredible execution. Amazing. It was, a, it was a play that we had worked on a bunch. Again, Stan, no surprise, incredible attention to detail. And, you know, whether it was after practice or at the end of a practice or at the end of a shoot around throughout the season, like we worked on end of game plays. Um, and that was one that we had in the, in, in, in the, in the back that we had worked on a bunch. We executed it perfectly. In his defense, it was incredibly tough angle. Mm-hmm. And he's got to finish with Gasol in recovery mode. Um, and I want to say, like, at, at the angle he had, he was kind of underneath the basket. Yeah, he's on the left side. and he's But he had jumped off his right foot. He had yep. jumped off his right foot. And so it was like, it was an awkward angle and a, sort of an awkward shot. Um, and, and, you know, after, after getting blown out in game one, um, they just, they, we had no answer for them um, to come back in game two and have a chance to win. 
Like that was that was a pivotal moment in that series. So we 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 lose that game in overtime. Game three, we win. We play really well. Um, and then game four, I thought we played great too. And again, I I don't remember the exact timing, but I want to say it was 87, 82, and we had the ball. Um, I think we we're at the free, I think Dwight was at the free throw line that we 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 miss and Kobe gets this rebound. And like as much as like the Derek Fisher play to tie it was huge. Kobe being able to score in five seconds and he just took the ball and he raced down the court. He goes against two or three players, he jumps in the air. He's got nowhere to go. And he throws the ball behind his head to Gasol streaking down the court who lays it in. And it was like, man, we talk about plays like swinging a series, like that one play. What if he, what if maybe they do score, but you know, what if, what if they scored in 12 seconds? Or 14 seconds. What if we just slowed them down a little bit? Then the timing at the on the other possession is different. Maybe they have to foul. Maybe Fisher doesn't have mm-hmm. as much time to tie it up. Um, so we lose, yeah, we lose two overtime games in that series. And then game five, um, Kobe just he was in full on, you know, black mamba mode. Like anytime we made a run, he had an answer for us. And uh you could tell you know, how much that, that moment meant to him for winning, especially without, without Shaq, you know, yeah, that, that was, that was, that was a, the that, first, that was a huge moment for him and, and how important that was for his legacy and his career. You mentioned the past, but any other specific moments, I mean, you're guarding him for much of the series, uh, it must've just been like feeling that aura as a young guy. What was it? What, what was that like? Just being right next to Kobe Bryant, a guy that you grew up watching. And was there any thing he said or specific moments that that stick with you today? Yeah, you know, losing losing that finals. I know this sounds weird, but losing the finals, I would say, was the highlight of my career because you know I get to I get to play in an NBA finals, something you always dream of, as someone who loves competition, loves competition at the highest level, getting to play in the NBA finals for a championship was surreal, dream come true. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a low light, even though we lost, it, it was not a low moment in my career. And I remember them celebrating afterwards and a few of us stuck around. I remember Jameer and Dwight stuck around to watch them celebrate. I stood there and watched with them and you, you know, you, you think you're going to be back, especially with our young core. We've got everybody under contract except for Hito. We thought we were going to re-sign him, and we thought we would be back. And on top of all of that, I get to guard Kobe. You know, the best player in that in that sort of post-Jordan era, probably the best player. And that was that was a highlight for me. And I got stops like, yeah, he made a few shots on me, but like, you know, I got stops on Kobe Bryant in the NBA finals and I'll fucking, I'll fucking tell my grandkids about that someday. (laughs) No, that's beautiful. I mean, that's really beautiful. And I think uh, people get so caught up in the ring culture and it's like, if you didn't win a ring, you're, you're a failure. But as we've talked about throughout this whole, it's, it's really hard to get to that point. And, you know, even just playing a role in one of five Kobe Bryant's championships, you know, even though you're at the wrong end, like that's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. No, there's, there's always going to be a little bit of a hole. 
I don't worry about legacy or resume. I mean, just like for me personally, in my soul, there's a little hole that I didn't win a championship at Duke and that I didn't win a championship in the NBA. Why else do you fucking play? Like, why else do you play? Yes, at some point, like, it became a job and the childhood love that I had for basketball was different. It was a different love. I love the grind. I love working out. I love training. I love trying to get better. I loved having a, a growth mentality. Individually, I loved having a growth mentality with every team I was on, trying to problem solve. I loved being part of a team. I loved all that shit. And I look at my career in its entirety. I'm proud of every moment. I'm proud of all of it. And I wouldn't change it. But Jesus, man, there's going to be a hole there. There is. Not, not for someone else's perception of my career. And I, I think across the board, whether you talk to Charles Barkley or if CP doesn't end one. We, CP and I just talked about this on my podcast. Like, he doesn't need the validation anymore. You know, he, it's, not a, it's not a validation. Like, oh, Bring is not going to validate my career. It's just a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small hole that will always be there. It'll, it's an empty feeling that will always be there. And like, I've got to live with that. It's disappointing, but it doesn't, it doesn't change what I was able to accomplish. It doesn't change what Charles Barkley was able to accomplish in his career. It's greatness. Like Charles, CP, go down the line of greats that didn't win. Like there's, there's still greatness. There's just that hole. It's always going to be there. Maybe you'll get one in podcasting. You know? <laughs> Maybe I, I'm sure I think that would fill the hole, you know, I don't, know. I don't know. I don't know. You know, it, it's, it's hard now in retirement because you know, you, you're, you're trying to figure out what you're going to chase next because you got to chase something, you know, and you're trying to figure out, you know, from a competitive standpoint, like, what are we going after? And, you know, it, it, it it's not, it's not dissimilar at all to my career. And that, you know, I, I, I put in work, there was a clear input, a clear strategy, and you live with the results. And so like when I, when I make content, I do the same thing. I put in the work, there's a clear strategy, there's input, and you have no fucking clue how people are going to react or how people are going to perceive something um, or how people will appreciate something. But you can live with whatever that is because you know I put in the work. Like, if anybody was around me in my career, they will attest to the fact that I maxed it out. Like I maxed it out. And it wasn't about maxing it out of individually. It was maxing it out so that I could win. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. That's, that's, that's why I love the game. I love the game. I love chasing after something. And, and in retirement, like, I don't know. You got to find something to chase after, I guess. Still trying to figure that out. Oh. Yeah, you're. I can just picture you on the golf course, like uh, man. It's not, well, not, yeah, that, not, yeah, not not exactly game game one of the 2009 finals. No, I'm ch believe me, I'm chasing that. Like, there, there's definitely clear goals. Like, you know, I I I've done this for you know majority of my adult life. You know, I I write down. I try to manifest things every year. I write down some goals, all of them attainable, like nothing mm -hmm. crazy. Um, so yeah, like single digit handicap. 2022 that's the goal end of the year end of the golf season end of october single digit handicap that's something to chase i'm going to text you uh december 31st <laughs> and, and, and see if you got in there um well jj thank you i, I know you, you got to go but um 
this was awesome. Like I've said to you, to you before, like this Orlando Magic team, for whatever reason, like people just love it. Like whenever I bring up this team 2009, I'm like, yo, like that was my team. Like I play with them in 2K and stuff. So, so I'm <laughs> yeah. glad that we got to do the deep dive. Um, I mean, real quick, just a few minutes. Like we mentioned the next season, you guys bring in Vince, he goes out, but still really good. 59 wins again uh, and you, you lose. And then after that, sort of it um you mentioned you you anticipate being back there in that same situation but as we've seen time and time again those windows can just really close maybe something similar happened uh with your time with the clippers just like any final thoughts to this to this season give it to you yeah you know i i i'll follow up on on that comment you know i think windows in the nba uh get increasingly tighter. You know, we, 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 we like to think of windows. Oh, we've got Joel Embiid locked up for this amount of years. You know, you don't know. We, we talked about all the luck that's involved. Joel gets hurt. Other guy gets hurt. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's chemistry issues. Uh, another team makes a huge leap, like what happened to us with the Clippers. You know, there was no way to predict what would happen with the Warriors? We beat them my first year there. We think we've got this long runway. We've got all these guys locked up in the prime of their careers. And our window was two years, 14 and 15. Um, with, the, with the magic, same thing. We've got a two-year window. Because what happens after 2010? LeBron goes to fucking Miami Heat. <laughs> and, and it's with D-Wade and Chris Bosh. And yeah. they just dominate the East. Um, so... Yeah, these windows close super tight. And Matt and I have talked about this a bunch, and he's talked about on the po his podcast separately of me, and I've been on the podcast to talk about it with him, and he's come on my podcast to talk about this. Like our 2010 team was, I think, a better team than 2009. I think we had a better chance to win. We, had, we were 2-0 against the Lakers that year. We, I think we were a more complete team. Um, we just couldn't get the job done against Boston. You know, and, and, and that was you know, a healthy KG team. Uh, we had a couple guys really struggle in that series, um, which you again you can never you can never mm -hmm. sort of predict these things. Um, but it's so it's like sports are so fragile, man. Sports are so fragile. Like you think about even the even the the Kevin Durant Warriors, like when he signs there, there oh the league's over, and you've got basically I mean basically you've got two teams trying mm -hmm. for two years. Yeah, you've got Houston trying, and you've got LeBron trying, and that's it. Golden you know, State. Yeah, right, well, Golden, go, I'm yeah, saying, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Golden State. Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying two Delicious. other teams trying, and and you know, when Katie, they win, they won two championships when Kevin was there, mm -hmm. like a great accomplishment. But the league, like they had, they had a two year window, we had a three year window. They obviously they got hurt, but they had a three year window. Like these windows are are two three years max, um, and everybody. You know, everybody now, especially with the way the league is and the amount of fucking amazing players there are, it's you, you feel like there's a bunch of teams that are just like one move away or one Kawhi style jump away. You know, there's his jump, some, his jump in San yeah. Antonio. It's like it, if you can get the right guy to develop, it's just like these teams are one one move away and. You know, I, I, I feel fortunate that I got to play on a bunch of great fucking teams. I love my two teams that I played on Philly. Those were teams that, you know, maybe not my first year, but certainly the second year we had a chance to win. Um, you know, and, and, and so just like being a part of that 
being a being on a relevant team in the NBA was was rewarding. I, I mean, I got there's a couple of seasons there where I didn't feel like I was on a relevant team, and that was that was frustrating. You know, that was something I said to Doc in our free agency meeting coming off. Uh, our rebuilding year in Orlando. Then I got traded to the Bucks, where we ended up getting the AC with the 37 and 45 record. Like I said to him, because I, you know, Minnesota had offered, I was in talks with Detroit as well. And I said to him, like, Doc, like, I want to fucking come to LA. Yeah. I need to be on a relevant team. I need to play for a championship. Like, that's what matters to me. Um, and I was, I was lucky that we got that deal done. I mean, I, you know, thank God you didn't go to, thank God he uh, didn't go to Detroit and Minnesota, man. <laughs> Yeah, Detroit Detroit ended up signing Josh Smith instead. So, um, all right, Dylan, well, I appreciate it, man. I got to bounce. This has been awesome. Always, dude, I love, I love reminiscing. I love, I love those Orlando teams. Um, such a good group. It was special, man. Special years. Awesome. Well, thank you, JJ. We'll listen to you on Old Man in the Three. Um, really appreciate your time and be good. All right. Good luck, good luck in your golf game. Thanks, bro. That is a wrap. Thank you guys for listening. This is your host, Dylan Dreyfus, signing off. I'll be back next week with a new guest and a new season to relive. Drop a rating and a review if you liked what you just heard. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for the continued support. We'll be back next week. Until then, peace. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.